Okay, so this is the last station on our whistle-stop tour of the primary centers of experience. And uh, maybe now is a, a good time to, to respond to Rachel's question this morning about these different terms. You know, they, they, we, we tend to use English terms, I say we, you know, collectively we tend to use some of these terms a little uh, overlappingly or uh, unthinkingly. And that's okay for everyday usage. But when we start to be really interested in the mind's functioning, it's actually helpful to, be, to know what we mean when we say different terms. And if you're familiar with the, the sort of the textual tradition of the Buddha's teachings and the various ways, because in those teachings, terms aren't used in a sloppy way, right? They're usually used in a precise way. And... My sense, at least, is that sometimes those the translations... I, I can be a bit critical of some of the translations. You've heard that already, right, with mindfulness. I don't think it's such a great translation. So this is the, the stuff of mind terms according to Martin, right, which others, teachers or scholars, might or might not agree with. But I have the privilege of being the one sitting here today, so you get my version. So consciousness, so I'll, I'll give, for those who are connected to the tradition, I'll give the Pali term for each one, but I'm mostly just trying to point to what, what I mean when I use these terms and how it might be helpful, I think, to understand these terms. So when I say consciousness, I mean vijnana in the Pali, and that's the quality of experience that r- registers experience right so we're all conscious and with every sound that we hear with every everything anything that happens that registers as an experience part of the component of that experience is this consciousness that's there right so when you fall asleep sounds are still going on but those sounds don't translate into an experience because consciousness isn't there to meet with the sound. So what we call experience is made out of, uh, well, in the Buddhist tradition it has five components, but simply we could say it's some sense object arising, a sight, a sound, a thought, a memory, a smell, etc. And then some meeting with and interpreting of that, and then the rendering of it, in consciousness. So consciousness is there as an absolute integral composite of experience. And that's called vijnana in in Pali. Then awareness. So often we hear consciousness and awareness used sort of interchangeably. But actually I think it's helpful to, to distinguish or disambiguate them. So if I'm speaking about awareness, the Pali term I'm thinking of is sampajanya, which sort of translates as clear knowing. So, and what that means, 
in, is as well as there just being consciousness registering an experience or hearing that, seeing that, there's the sense of actually uh, of it forming a process where we're tracking our experience. So that's what we mean by this sense of nupasana, tracking or knowing from the inside, right? There's some pajanya, there's knowing that this is happening. Oh, this is being felt. Oh, it's this kind of sensation. Right? It might include the knowing not just of the sensation that's there, but of the, the layering that we start to do around it. The way we get tight around something that's unpleasant. Or the way we start to get you know, transfixed by something that's pleasant. So awareness is that quality right, which is not always present in experience. But that is one of the qualities that practice is cultivating. The capacity to track, to know from the inside, to be clearly aware of what's happening. To, to know and track and be clearly aware of what we're conscious of. It's sometimes called knowing what you know. Right? Knowing what you know. Being aware of that which is in consciousness at any given moment. So what do we got? Uh, consciousness, awareness, mindfulness. Again, sometimes those three are used interchangeably. Being conscious of, being aware of, being mindful of. In the original tradition, there's no grammatical um, equivalent to being mindful of. Right? The way sati, which is a Pali term, preferred presence, is spoken about, is always as either establishing oneself in sati, in presence, right? entering into presence. Right? So it's that, it's that sense of actually uh, kind of stabilizing the attention inside of what's happening. And that's what, when we say mindfulness or sati, and of course people use mindfulness in all kinds of vague ways now, but in terms of where it comes from in the tradition, and certainly what I have in mind when I'm talking about being present in the ways we have today, emotionally present, embodiedly present, womily present. It's that sense of stabilizing our attention inside of experience. And those last two, sati and sampajanya, mindfulness, presence, and clear knowing, are very often used as composite terms by the Buddha. So what we call mindfulness practice is cultivating those two qualities. The, The sati, establishing one's attention in a steady way inside experience, and applying this kind of clear knowing of Oh, tracking experience, noticing experience, feeling into experience, right? Which is so. Those are the kind of the powerful ways we start to understand what's happening, rather than just being pulled and pushed around by what's happening. Sati and sampajanya, awareness and presence, and then attention. What do you mean by attention? So we we looked at two different types of attention this morning. Disembodied attention, ajoniso, and then embodied or wumi attention, yoniso manisikara. So attention is that quality of mind that the way we can sort of 
we get, the mind can move and does move towards and away from particular aspects of experience. Right? So there's a lot going on right now, but probably, or hopefully, your attention is directed towards me rather than directed towards the sounds that are going on outside. But now as soon as I say the sounds that are going on outside, oh, your attention goes there. Right? So attention is that aspect of mind that moves towards and away from particular areas of experience. And how does attention move? Well, for most people it moves in a combination of two ways. The first is it gets pulled towards intensity. So, there you go. See what happened there? There was something intense and it pulled your attention. You don't get choice around that, right? Try to not have your attention go here now when I do this. 100% failure. Of course it goes there. And so an, an intense sound pulls attention, but equally intense sensation pulls attention, intense emotion pulls attention, etc. So one way attention moves is by is it gets pulled by intensity. The second way attention moves is just it, by following its habits. Right? So if there's nothing intense happening, then your attention just goes where it goes by habit. So some of us, our habit is we go to daydreaming. Some of us, our habit, we go to anxiety. Some of us, our habit, we go to nostalgia. Some of us, we go by habit to moaning. Right? Some, or whatever. Right? We have various habits of mind. And when there's no particular intensity pulling at the attention, the attention will tend to go to just the reinforcing of familiar habits. Right? We take our attention to that aspect of experience that's familiar to us. Because there's something about its familiarity that feels reassuring. Even though it, what it may be, that area of experience, is something quite unhelpful, like anxiety or complaint or, uh, or daydreaming or whatever. Then, third way. So most people, that's it. That's how their attention moves. By intensity and by habit. Lost in habit and then pulled into intensity. And then react to the intensity and then back to the habits. Now, I know that's a pretty bleak view. <laughs> but, you know, humans are not very good at managing their attention generally. Right? So that's, that's the story of human attention for most people. Except for practitioners. <laughs> and so that's the third way that attention moves is by practice. By intention. Right? By actually intervening with this stuff. Oh, there's consciousness and experience happening. I can actually cultivate presence and sati and clear knowing, sampajanya, awareness of what's happening. And I can direct, consciously direct my attention in, in helpful ways rather than just being pulled around by intensity and my reaction to intensity and then pulled around by reinforcing habits. So one of the ways we do that, right, is called mindfulness of breathing, right, or called cultivating wumi attention or heartful attention or whatever. Right? We, we keep bringing our, our attention, directing our attention to hearness, right, 
to what's happening, directing our attention in an embodied way, and choosing something that's not too stimulating. That's one of the reasons breath and natural bodily sensation are a good object to train the attention. You won't train your attention by focusing on something intense. Because, like we just said, intensity pulls attention anyway. If you go to the movies, you sit there for two hours, or you don't need to train your attention. You don't need to keep coming back, coming back to the movies like you need to come back to your breath. Because the movie's intense, it pulls the attention. But then meditation is like, there's nothing intense about breathing. It's boring. It's dull. I mean, it's not, but that's the way it appears. Right? So our attention goes roaming around by habit, looking for something more interesting. So then it's like, oh, train it just to come back. Not, I mean, well, let me see. So part of the benefit of that is that by using something ordinary, naturally unfolding, always available, just natural body sitting, body breathing, that we get to actually sort of strengthen that muscle, not really a muscle, a psychic muscle, of being able to rest our attention onto and into what's happening. So that means we're less pulled by intensity, and it means that we, we, we stop reinforcing those habits. That's how they diminish. Whatever you feed, that's what grows. So most people spend their lives feeding their habits. Right? So their habits get stronger. Which is why, like you were saying, mostly as people get older, their habits get older, uh, get older, get stronger. Right? Their beliefs get more rigid, more further reinforced, etc. It's also why longevity of practice makes for a freer, more flexible uh, relationship with habits, a way in which old habits can die and get metabolized. Their old stories can be given room in the heart and, and lose their drama. And Maybe I'll just briefly, and then we'll do a little practice around that. But just the three types of particular attention that get, are described, in, I think, in a very in a kind of beautiful way in the tradition. In the Pali, they're called vitaka, vichara, viveka. Some of you familiar with those terms? So vitaka. So once we, if we're not, if attention is not moving by habit but is moving by practice, then there's three ways that are particularly helpful to direct the attention. So the first is vitaka, pointing attention. Right? That's that attention where you just keep coming back, coming back, back into your belly, back to breathing, back to sensation. And, and it's like the finger pointing. That's the image that's used. Are you pointing your attention into what's happening? Then the second quality of attention, vichara, is more like the palm of the hand rather than the finger pointing. It's, the, it's feeling what's happening, handling experience. So you're getting to know that the texture, the feel, getting familiar with the habits of mind. You go vichara, it's that you're sort of settling into experience. So you start to feel, oh, that's what I do. 
when I have an unpleasant memory, I tend to, you know, whatever. I tend to get tense, or I go distracted, or I start panicking, or whatever. Right? So you, you, learning of vichara gets familiar with experience in such a way that you're not so fooled by it. It's like, oh, I understand how mind works. And the more we understand how mind works, the more we understand how mind works. I mean, that's what teachings are. They're understanding how mind works in such a way that we can talk about it and we can all recognize it because our minds all basically work in the same functioning. That's why these two and a half thousand year old teachings still work. That's why if somebody's really metabolized their experience well and understood it well and become really familiar with it, one can speak about that in such a way that opens up that familiarity for others. So, vitaka, pointing, being here, being present, coming back to enter into sati, to, to uh, be clear about what's happening, sampajanya. And then the vichara, hanging out with experience, getting familiar with experience, not uh, kind of starting to understand the nature of experience. And then the third quality, viveka, is, so if the first is the point, pointing finger and the second is the handling of the palm the third is just that sort of open embrace it's like being able to really relate to experience meet experience in a wide perspective so you're both intimate with what's happening but you're also you kind of you haven't bought its hype right it's like it's not the only thing in the universe it's just this it's like there's room for it there's space around it. You're not taking your experience so personally. You're not taking it so seriously. It's not filling up all the space in consciousness. There's a kind of wide view, spacious view, relaxed view, embracing view. So that's a little bit the, the kind of breaking up those different terms that easily get smushed together. And, you know, I don't want, when I talk about those things, I don't want you to try to kind of figure them all out. Which one's this, which one's that? And then it gets we get kind of tight. But often as we, as we just settle into practice, as we get used to being with uh, experience, and being in experience, as we get used to the mechanisms by which our attention gets hijacked, and we learn to keep just to come back. It's actually having some model of, oh, that's what this is, that's what this is. It's helpful. Sometimes it's more helpful, like we're sort of retrofitting our practice with the understanding of those terms that might come afterwards. Right? If you just first sat down to meditate and you're like, right, well, there's this and there's that and there's this, and I just take at least six or seven different types, right? then you just get like overly complicated with it. So amidst the consciousness that's registering experience and the awareness that's able to track what's happening and the presence in which to meet it all and the qualities of attention that we're giving to, uh, to experience, running all through that, there's this kind of central uh, vision of freeness to be freely 
amidst whatever's happening. And that freeness has a different feel according to the three centers. The, the body's relationship to that freeness is, we might call being, actually. It's the sense that life, it's just everything's just happening by itself. Everything's allowed to be. It's possible to relax in the midst of this. And the feeling, embodiment, is of that beingness or isness, the kind of natural expression of everything coming, going, arising, passing, existing, fading. Ah. Oh. The freeness with which everything can just have its life. The freeness of the heart is the taste of that, is love. It seems to the free heart that just that's what all this is, this life, this existence. It's sort of love in action. It's life loving everything enough that it just gives rise to planets and skies and, and consciousness and beings. In that sense that the only real way that makes sense to meet experience freely is to love what arises, to love what passes, to love what happens whether we like it or not, whether it's the love that delights in the beautiful or whether it's the love that breaks, the heart that breaks in the face of suffering and pain. Love is the freeness of the heart in the way that presence is the freeness of the the body, the belly centre. And then the freeness of the head centre is that kind of, well, that, that sense of luminosity. And also what often in, in Buddhism, somewhat obfuscatingly, I think, is called emptiness. And that sense of just, it's just it's, there's all of this vast, vast, wide, open, ungraspable sphere of awareness in which experience is playing out and experience is is that life is so infinitely ungraspable that we kind of give up our attempts to grasp give up our attempts to understand give up our attempts to manipulate give up our attempts to manage it all and wow it all keeps happening anyway and it all keeps happening in a kind of brilliant way right Life is utterly unmanageable, and yet it's sort of orderly. Breath happens by itself. Heart pumps by itself. Planets turn by themselves. Day and night and this and that happens by itself. Living and dying and and the unfolding of everything happens by itself. And a kind of deep unshakable um, knowing of, trusting in, allowing of, and, uh, and being brilliant in the midst of all of that. When I say being brilliant, it's a strange word. It doesn't mean brilliant as in brilliant. Brilliant as in the original meaning of brilliant, luminous, bright. Yeah. The freeness of the head centre is its 
innate brilliance, the innate brilliance of having a mind. Mind is fucking brilliant, <laughs> right? It's just it's a bit obfuscated and clouded by all kind, all the kind of you know preoccupations that get hold of us. So maybe just a little time and taste for hanging out in the brilliance of mind together and I'll see if I can give some uh, some little instruction that might point away from the content that easily grabs our mind and towards the openness and brilliance around what's happening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.